Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on September 14th, 2017 at 10am. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. If you want to find out about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with Ivy Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay. Time for today's interview. Dr. Kurt Braddock is a lecturer and researcher in the Department of Communication, Arts and Sciences at Penn State University. Kurt leverages communication theory to explore the persuasive effectiveness of terrorist groups' strategic messages, particularly in relation to narratives. These messages intended to recruit or radicalize audiences. He also develops theory-based guidelines for developing strategic messages that counter the radicalization process. His work has been published for, in several communication and terrorism journals, including Communication Monographs, Terrorism and Political Violence, and Studies in Conflict and Terrorism. Dr. Braddock has performed research for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Office of Naval Research, the U.S. Department of Defense, and the British government. Kurt, thanks for joining us here on Turkey, Talking Terror. John, thanks for having me in London. No problem. So, I start off with all our guests asking them, how... Did you get involved in this kind of research? Uh, I guess it started when I was about 17 or 18. Um, I noticed, well, I was at a pool hall, actually. Uh, reckless youth, wasted in a pool hall, playing uh, playing pool with my buddy. And I noticed that was right when the, um, the retaliatory strikes on, I think it was in Sudan and Afghanistan, um, against the bin Laden bases there, the bin Laden uh, areas there anyway. And I knew that something was going on, but I wasn't sure what it was. So at that time, I started reading about terrorism quite a bit. So I started reading about things like Black September and the Olympics. I started reading a bit about Al-Qaeda. And um, it was kind of just a passing interest at that point until 2001 when the September 11th attacks happened. And really, that just angered me more than anything. So I was a business student at that point at, uh, at the College of New Jersey. And um, I knew after I finished, I was either going to either go into officer's training in the U.S. military or I was going to go to grad school and try to study these issues. So um, I went to the University of Delaware, and in going to Delaware, I applied for the political science program and the communication program. And sure enough, the political science program rejected me. The communication science, or the communication department accepted me, so I ended up in communication there. Um, in, at Delaware, there weren't really the resources necessary to study political violence per se, so uh, I studied just small group and group communication there. When I got to Penn State, I started studying persuasion under Dr. Jim Dillard in the, the Communication Arts and Sciences program. And then my second year of my PhD, John Horgan came to Penn State to start the, um, the International Center for the Study of Terrorism, and I kind of linked up with him there. And from there, it was just, it was, it was just natural to work together. So that's kind of how I got involved. So you talked there about your, you applied to political science, you applied to communications. And if you look back at Andrew Silk's work from around the time that you were getting influenced mm -hmm. um, uh, it, and starting reading up on this, he was saying that the majority of research in this area 
is done through political science. Yeah, that's exactly why I got. I was looking into political science programs. I thought that was the only route into that kind of research. And why was it then? Why was communications the other option? And did you see that there was there was much going on in relation to communications and um, political violence? At that time, no. At that time, I wasn't even conceiving of kind of persuasive processes in terrorist groups. Um, I just knew that I wanted to get into grad school somehow. And mm -hmm. honestly, communication sounded like something that I could kind of mold in any way that I wanted to. And it turned out, luckily, that I was right. I knew nothing about persuasion theory or communication or anything going into that. I was just blind. But it sounded like something that was pretty versatile into things I could study there. So it seemed like communication was the right way to go. And sure enough, that's where I ended up. Um, while at Delaware, while it's an excellent master's program, one of the best in the country, it wasn't that wasn't the place where I was able to kind of mold it into the terrorism studies route. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until Penn State where it really kind of came into focus. And you, you talked about meeting Jim Dillard there and we'll see uh, mm -hmm. later on you've got a, a piece that you wrote with him mm -hmm. not necessarily about political violence it's about narratives mm -hmm. as well. this is what's really defining your career at the moment and mm -hmm. defining your research um, but you mentioned as well um, John Horgan came to Penn State mm -hmm. and John uh, obviously a heavily influential uh, researcher in the psychology of terrorism um, and what was it did, did you approach him did he approach you how did you link up with John then? Well, um, when I told Jim, my advisor, Dr. Dillard, that I wanted to study terrorism, he didn't really know what to do with me then. He knew it seemed interesting and he was really mm -hmm. supportive about doing that. He just didn't know what to do. So he sent me to the political science department at Penn State to do an independent study with, with a professor named Navin Bappett, who I think is at UNC now. I'm not positive. It's where he was. Um, but uh, at that point, he was at Penn State and I did an independent study with him. And I told him what I was interested in, and he said, oh, you need to read this book, The Psychology of Terrorism by John Horgan. I said, okay. So I started reading the book, and um, I happened to walk into Jim's office for just some random meeting one day, and I had that book with me. And Jim noticed the book, and he said, do you know that guy starting a research center here? Just by luck, pure luck. And uh, I said no. And then um, I, after that, I got in touch with John via email. And at that point, John had just gotten to state college. So I, uh, I said, can we get together for a meeting? So I went in for a meeting, and John just kind of asked, he's like, what are you reading? What kind of things have you read? And at that point, it was still kind of the black septic, the kind of the high-profile terrorist attacks that had happened at that point. So I told him what I was reading, and it, uh, he was just getting started with a, um, a funded project through START on de-radicalization programs around the country. And he needed a research assistant, so he brought me on there, and that was kind of where I started with... Uh, with ICST. So it's just, it, I mean, dumb luck more than anything else that John came to Penn State. Yeah, it's, uh, and this thing, like, we can, whenever I ask this question, how did you get involved? Like, the at the the end of everyone's uh, analysis of how they got involved, that issue of luck, just being in the right place, the right time, meeting the right people. Mm -hmm. If John hadn't come there to Penn State, if he had gone to another university, your career might have been might have been different. Oh, knows? yeah. I had no focus at all until I started working with John, really. I mean, I knew I wanted to do something in persuasion and social influence, but I wasn't sure what. So that really gave it focus and drive. And so his work outside of the, the book, The Psychology of Terrorism, has clearly influenced your career. And mm -hmm. you 
put two of his pieces down as uh, being the influential pieces on mm -hmm. your career. He's going to get a big head when he listens to this yeah. now. Uh, the first piece that you put down was From Profiles to Pathways and Roots to Roots, Perspectives from Psychology on Radicalization into Terrorism. This was a piece he published in 2008. Mm -hmm. What was it about this, this piece that... That, that influenced your research and your way of thinking in, on terrorism? Well, some of the stuff that I was reading when I first started reading about terrorism and was reading about the pro high-profile events, it wasn't really from academics. There was, there was stuff from um, journalists. There was stuff from kind of self-proclaimed terrorism experts. And, I mean, some of them, they, they are terrorism experts. I mean, I was reading Peter Bergen. I was reading Simon Reeve and people like that. But there were also others that were out there. And a lot of the people who kind of stylized themselves as experts were talking about this is what a terrorist is and this is their profile and these are the people that become terrorists. And even then, I mean, I wasn't thinking about it academically at that point, but I mean, it was clear that, yeah, that some terrorists have these characteristics, but I mean, there's thousands upon thousands of other people who have these characteristics who don't become terrorists. So clearly it's not an issue of having these static characteristics that make them, make them a terrorist. So I mentioned the uh, the Profiles to Pathways paper because that really jumped out at me as something that was something that I knew without knowing how to express it academically and that there must be something else going on. It must be some sort of process that involves psychological and social forces that drive somebody to become a terrorist rather than just who they are. So that paper was the first one that I came across that really talked about the process of becoming a terrorist rather than somebody having some sort of like manifest destiny of becoming a terrorist and that they just... They're, they were always going to be a terrorist from the time they were born, which never made sense to me at all. And it, it discusses about the, the heterogeneity of people who become involved. And you talk about the, the process, and John goes into depth in a lot of pieces um, that he's written on the, the process, um, or the psychological process and the development of a terrorist. And that actually links to the, piece, the other piece of his that you, um, that you emphasize, the piece with Max Taylor, a, a conceptual framework for addressing psychological process and the development of a terrorist. Mm -hmm. what, do, what do you mean? What does, what's John talking about when he's saying that it's a process? Well, when, when John talks about, we've actually had discussions about what he means by process, and he... He talks about it at a much greater length and with, uh, with much more flair than I do. But that piece jumps out at me just because, again, like the last piece, in that it, it talks about all the different social and psychological forces that come to bear on somebody as they develop. So it's not that somebody just suddenly becomes a terrorist. It's that there's all these steps that go in, incremental steps that go into somebody becoming a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And people can take steps backward. They can take steps forwards. They can go sideways. They can take different roles. But it's never, it doesn't ever seem to be a switch that somebody gets flipped in their head. It's always because it's this incremental thing where somebody goes through a series of phases and whatever those phases are, they differ from person to person, but it's always a series of events. Um, there might be what John calls a catalyst event that kind of pushes somebody over the edge, but it's never just a catalyst event that pushes somebody. There's always some other social psychological forces that are driving what's going on. So I think, I think what John means by process is that there isn't a singular event that can point to somebody becoming a terrorist. There isn't a singular characteristic that makes somebody a terrorist. Instead, people who become terrorists are all influenced by all these forces that are around them, environmental, social, psychological, sociological. All these issues come to bear, and they all need to be considered when you think about when somebody becomes a terrorist rather than thinking about just one over the other. Yeah, so it's not just thinking about the individual. It's thinking about this context that they're, they're surrounded. So what, what I've said in a number of these podcasts and discussing it, and you won't be surprised that you're not the only person that's picked John's work uh, mm -hmm. as influencing them. Um, maybe there's some selection bias there in relation <laughs> to who I pick for interviews. But um, 
that that when we look at this, it's just because two people are joining the same group, they're in different contexts as well. They're going through different uh, pro- they're going through a different process that influences them, different things influencing them getting involved in the group. They mm-hmm. might be going in for different reasons. They might be going in at different times. They might be joining in a they might have a different role within the group a number of these things and i think those two pieces that you point out really emphasize this absolutely yeah i mean you look at again if you consider the small number of people to become terrorists and you draw you see where i mean you look at certain neighborhoods where certain terrorists are drawn from like there's a real problem in the united states right now in minnesota and minneapolis st paul area with people being least heavily recruited by groups like isis al-shabaab al-qaeda and Although that's kind of like a really heavily recruited from area, only a small number of people go out and come out of there and actually go join or do anything. So, I mean, a lot of people there are subject to the same environmental forces. But again, it's only a really small percentage of people that go on. So there's clearly a number of other things going on with respect to how their their trajectory toward terrorism. So I think there's several types of contextual forces that we don't even know about that need to be considered when we think about why somebody becomes a terrorist. And I think, um, I think John really hit the nail on the head with and He uses the line even now to say it's better to think about how somebody becomes a terrorist rather than why somebody becomes a terrorist. Because when you think about why, you can use all the kind of the justifications that are used by terrorist groups. But when you think about how, you're forced to think about the different forces that were brought to bear on that person. So Yeah, and those small differentiations in the, the question that you ask can really reveal things, uh, mm-hmm. reveal things in, in a different light. Mm-hmm. Um, the final piece that you focused on, I actually, I was surprised that you focused on this one. I think it's a really good piece, I but I, do, I wouldn't have connected it with, with your research. But it's Gerald Post, uh, Ehud Sprinzak and Loretta Denny, uh, their piece, The Terrorists in Their Own Words, interviews with 35 incarcerated Middle Eastern terrorists. Mm-hmm. Why, why this piece? Well, this has to do more with kind of the direction I'm going with my research and something kind of my um, my interest in primary data, because something I think we'll talk about in a little while is kind of what I think about the 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 whole discipline of terrorism studies. And I think one of the things that's really lacking is primary data. Mm-hmm. So this was the first study that I came across where it was really I mean, it's not a high end, but at the time it was a high end for a number of um number of people that were interviewed, 35 in 2003 is quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the first paper that I came across where they were actually talking to people who had been, it was either arrested or convicted of terrorist offenses. And it was, I think if I remember, it was just a qualitative study, really, they were just kind of putting, looking at patterns and things they said. But um, that really jumped out at me as something that could be useful for influencing future research from 2003. Now, I'm trying to get involved with interviewing extreme right wingers in the United States. So I find myself going back and looking at that piece mm-hmm. and um, kind of learning from it as I move forward. So is it more the methodology that was used there and, and the sampling that was used there? Yeah, was... the, me- the methodology is what jumped out at me for this one in that um, it was one of the first pieces that I've ever seen that really puts an, an emphasis on primary data and the utility of primary data. Now, at this point, this is 14 years ago. Now we're doing all kinds of new things with primary data that we can that we 
what we wouldn't have thought to do in 2003. Mm -hmm. But this is an early example of what can be done when you actually talk to terrorists and what we can learn from them. And I think that's evident in some of the stuff that's being done now. We're seeing more and more people try to collect that kind of data. And it is useful. Um, I think now we can move, we can even do better. We can move forward, quantify it, learn from it. And, um, and start doing inferential things with it rather than just do qualitative stuff. But that was the one that I think really kicked it off for me. So you mentioned that that's influencing, that kind of research is influencing um, the way you're moving with your career at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we'll move on to your own, your own research now. Sure. Um, like you've picked three pieces here. Two of them deal specifically with narratives. Mm -hmm. And that's what your recent career would be really well known for. Um, but you also picked one that looks at treatment approaches for terrorists and extremists. And it goes back to that first uh, project that John got, got you involved on, that mm -hmm. DRAD project uh, funded by START. So we'll, we'll start with that. And this is that piece with uh, that research with John uh resulted in a number of publications for you guys or mm -hmm. at least a couple anyway and really well well known well cited but this is a more recent one a more up-to-date uh, piece for an upcoming uh, edited volume it's um treatment approaches for terrorists and extremists so do you want to just give the listeners an overview on what this chapter is about yeah um, sure um the editors of the new volume had approached me because they came across actually the piece that i did with uh with john on the de-radicalization initiatives and if I'm remembering correctly, this, um, this chapter is in a larger volume. It's in a criminology volume on the treatment of violent offenders more generally. So uh, they read the piece that John and I did, and they approached me and said that we're interested in, in what you know about how terrorists are treated in, in other contexts. Can you write us up a chapter based on what you know and what you did back in 2009? And I said, I can. I mean, the information... Um, a lot of the, the programs are still going and some of them still do some, some of the same things, but some of the programs are defunct now. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? And they said, yeah, that's okay. Just write it up. So um, I kind of replicated what I did with John. I changed the chapter up, obviously, but I expanded on some of the sections. Um, I talked about I talk about the Saudi program, which any discussion of the DRAD programs, you got to talk about the Saudi program. Um, I talked about the Yemeni program and the Indonesian program. And then um, one of the programs that I included that wasn't included because it wasn't around at the time in 2009 is the uh, the French prison radicalization, de-radicalization program. So that was kind of the, the added on to it. Um, the editors of this book were interested in this because they thought it was a nice synopsis of the way that extremists are really approached when they're incarcerated. And um, they're interested in knowing how to go about treating people who are incarcerated for terrorist defenses. Um, I'm very careful in the chapter to say that you can't know how to, you, can, you can't write a chapter on this is how you treat terrorists generally. It's a case-by-case -case basis. But um, this is a synopsis of how it's been done in the past. So this, is, this really was kind of an offshoot of the paper that I did with John with a little bit of an extension here and there, especially with respect to the French program. So you, you pick these, these cases. In, in, in the chapter, you specify, say, look, there are loads of cases you could have picked, loads mm -hmm. of programs you could have picked, but you've picked these four specifically because they have different approaches mm -hmm. to, um, to how they, they treat and manage um, right. terrorists. What are these key differences and key differences in the approaches? Well, I'll start with the Yemeni and the uh, Indonesian program, and they were very much kind of ad hoc kind of, um, there wasn't really any formal structure to them really. Um, they were more just kind of discussion programs where they linked up people who were arrested for terrorist offenses with those who had been either previously involved uh, in terrorism in the case of the Indonesian program 
or in Yemen, um, they linked up people who were arrested for terrorist offenses with religious scholars. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I think the Yemeni program was actually called the Religious Dialogue Committee because there was a, a committee of people who were considered to be experts on Islam and were able to go in and uh, talk to these prisoners on uh, issues concerning Islam and what they had done. Um, so the, this first group was really dialogue-based. It was, it was really based on discussion. Um, I should mention the Indonesian program was more um, focused on involving people who were arrested for terrorist offenses. So um, Nasir bin Abbas, I think, was involved. And there was another gentleman involved, too. His name is escaping me right now. Um, the French when, program. When, when you say involved, these were former combatants who yeah. had, who were part who were helping helping out in the in the program. Correct, correct. The uh, the Indonesian program again. It's been a while since I looked at the chapter, but if I remember right, it was kind of put together by um, the Indonesian, almost like a special police force called Detachment Eighty Eight, and they recruited these people to come in and to, uh, to talk with the people who were arrested. But the, the link between the Yemeni and the Indonesian program is conversation. It was all based on almost exclusively conversation. Um, then you have the French program, um, which was kind of interesting um, when it came out. I know it's run into problems since then, and its future is very much in doubt. But the French program was kind of based on more logistic steps you could take, mostly isolation of people who are radical prisoners to avoid um, radicalism kind of spreading throughout the prison population. So that was much more of a logistic type step they took. And the French program, as I said, it's still very it's it's. It's been around for a bit, but I mean, you could still honestly say it's early days with that because they don't really know what direction it's going with that yet. Um, and the Saudi program kind of stands by itself just because of how comprehensive it is. Um, I say comprehensive just on the basis of the number of things they include in the program. Um, in terms of how effective they are, there's debates going on as to whether or not they're effective. But the sort of things they do, I mean, they engage in conversation and classes the same way that the Yemen program and the, the Indonesian program do, but they also incorporate... Um, psychological treatment, art therapy classes. Um, they involve their families with the the, uh, the de-radicalization process. And for many of those that go through the Saudi program, they're not in prison. They're brought to a special facility where they go through this sort of program, almost like a halfway house. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's comprehensive in a sense that it has all these different types of, uh, all these different facets. But um, as far as how effective they are, there hasn't really been any good data to show that what they do actually works. They have their own definition for uh, what de-radicalization is. And in terms of recidivism, they say that it's a low rate. Um, it, very, it very well may be, but we still need good data on whether or not it actually is. So you talked there about measures of success and how do we find out if these have actually been successful or not. And one of the things that stands out when analyzing these programs is that we're reliant on, on them to say, yes, we have been successful or mm -hmm. no, we haven't been successful. And this actually, I feel it sort of defines the way that you have been going in recent years as well. You're, you're all about uh, the data. Mm -hmm. and how do we analyze it? How do we assess um, if this is actually what's happening? Mm -hmm. um, how do you think this could be dealt with better in relation specifically to, to this, first of all, in... Well, in terms of the de-radicalization programs, um, yeah, what you say is absolutely correct. We're 100% reliant on what they say. And what they say is completely contingent on how they define de-radicalization. So um, I think it was the Saudi program, yeah, most positive was the Saudi program, that they defined de-radicalization as somebody who didn't go back and fight in certain contexts 
but it was okay if they fought in other contexts. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that suits their purposes, fine, but there are a lot of people who would argue that they weren't de-radicalized then. Um, what I think that needs to be done for um, de-radicalization, counter-radicalization, any kind of counter-ideological treatment, for lack of a better word, um, there needs to be quantitative data based on people's beliefs and attitudes um, pre-test, post-test, we need experimental data, things like that. And we can do that. The social sciences uh, have been doing that for decades, and we can bring those sorts of methods to bear on the sorts of issues that we're getting into. So that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to do now. I'm taking a lot of established, valid, reliable scales that have been used in communication science to terrorism studies. And right now what I'm doing is I'm developing um, a couple of experiments, just kind of small pilot studies, where I'm looking at... um, Pre-test, post-tests, um, control group versus experimental group, beliefs and attitudes in response to terrorist or terrorist propaganda and uh, counter-ideological messaging, just to get an idea about if we see effects. And I think that's kind of the starting point. We need to start being able to measure on valid and reliable scales how this affects people's beliefs and attitudes. And skeptics will say, well, how do we know they're telling the truth and this, that, and the other? But the social sciences have been dealing with that for 100 years. We can get past that. And we have gotten past that. And we can bring these sorts of methods to bear in terrorism studies. And I think that's what we need to do now. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to do, starting very small, doing um, you know university studies. And then from there, I'm moving into the field to see if I can get access to participants to get actual real-world data um, from people who are at risk for violent radicalization, people who have engaged in violence, and things like that. So... Yeah, like you said, I'm all about the data. We can we can use the sort of methods that we have for these problems. We just need to start doing it. And you've started to do it um, using your communications background, um, looking at narratives. Mm-hmm. And the, the next two pieces um, that you focus on, um, one with uh, Jim Dillard and one with John Horgan, looks at narratives specifically and counter and the development of counter-narratives. The first piece with, with Jim Dillard, it's... It's a meta-analysis looking at what we know about the effect that narratives can have. And then you're applying this in your piece with John about, okay, with this understanding, how can we construct um, counter-narratives to reduce the support of terrorism? Do you want to just tell us what you found from the the meta-analysis that you did with Jim? Yeah, sure, because that's that's the basis of pretty much all the the counter-narrative work that I do now. Um, the meta-analysis was based on a small study that I did as part of my dissertation. So my dissertation, I looked at the narratives of the animal liberation front. It started off as just kind of a qualitative analysis of those narratives. But um, in talking with Jim, I kind of asked the question, I was like, well, how do we know these even have any effects? Like, we're assuming, but we don't know. So Jim said, that's a good question. Let's figure it out. We're going to do a meta-analysis of narrative uh, studies. So what we did, and rather than kind of bore you with the details of the, um, the dissertation chapter, this is a much expanded version. Um, Jim and I went through, I guess, about 40 years of uh, communication research and drew every effect size we could that looks at directly whether or not a narrative changed somebody's beliefs, attitudes, intentions, or behaviors relative to no effect. So we're not, we weren't comparing narratives to stats. We weren't comparing narratives to... Um, some other form of evidence. We were looking to see whether or not if somebody was exposed to a story, does that change their beliefs and attitudes or intentions or behaviors? And we found that over, I think it was something like close to 100 studies, 
close to 300 sample or 300 effect sizes that across all four outcomes there is an effect that exposure to a narrative will change somebody's beliefs attitudes intentions or behaviors consistent with what's espoused within the narrative itself so they are persuasive generally speaking across contexts so i think actually we need to take a step back for a moment what mm. do you mean by a narrative because there's often misconceptions about what a narrative is mm -hmm. what is it that you and Jim and get next you and John what do, in mm -hmm. your, those pieces what is a narrative like you'll get different definitions from different people and I'm sure that Steve Corman and people at Arizona State would disagree with me so when I say narrative I, t I mean any I have a very long definition for it in my papers but essentially means um, a sequence of text whether it's spoken written whatever that tells about a plot it's populated with characters there is a the the events that take place are sequenced. They have, there's causality between the events. So essentially, if you were to read a book or read a story or watch a movie, that to me is what a narrative is. Now, if you were to ask um, Steve Corman and those at Arizona State, I don't disagree with them. They just have a different definition, really. Um, they would call that a story, and they would call a narrative a series of stories that fits together in a meaningful way. So I just call, I use the word narrative to mean what they would call a story. Mm -hmm. So when I say narrative, I essentially mean story. And did you find in your analysis that uh, whether it was a fictional narrative or a factual narrative or, or the actual medium itself, did those, did they have an effect? No effect on those, though, from what we found. Um, we tried to do moderator analyses and split them out. Um, and we found that across all four outcomes, um, whether something was fictional or non-fictional, whether the medium was presented, whether it was a, like a video game versus a movie, people were persuaded by them. Now, where we we're really kind of tentative with that we take we say take this with a huge grain of salt because we need to collect more data and we're actually doing that now we're going to re-up this study again probably in the next year and a half so we're going to re-up it every couple of years because more and more data comes out come out um so um right from what we found in the i guess that's what 2016 study no there was no difference in terms there was no moderator effects that we could find it doesn't mean they're not there it just means the data that we have they weren't born out there so now this is based within communication studies, within mm -hmm. communications. Um, and you said when you went in uh, to do this with Jim, first of all, um, when you were a student at Penn State, that there really wasn't anyone looking at political violence. Has that changed now? Like, what do you see now in communication? In, the, in communication? Yeah, there's more people coming in. Um, a lot of people look at, at terrorism, I found, within communication. And when you talk about communication, there's all these subdivisions. I'm in a subdivision that you would call communication science, mm -hmm. which the kind of those qualitative and quantitative type studies. You also have another uh, section of communication um, at Penn State anyway, which is rhetoric, which looks at how language affects social movements and things like that. Um, rhetoricians are getting much more involved in the study of political violence, and that's useful. But for me, I'm much more interested in the quantitative effects of messages and how it relates to political violence. Um, there are more people coming in and kind of dipping their toe in the communication world and how communication affects uh, terrorism, political violence. But I'm not seeing too many people within communication science study it explicitly or study it. Um, but that's not the focus of what the research is they're doing. I'm seeing a lot of like political scientists and psychologists talk about messaging as part of larger studies. But no, I don't see too many communication scholars really getting involved. I think we're going to see more people in the next couple of years because, I mean, judging from emails that I get from curious students, I think that more people are going to be coming in. But... As of now, um, I think messaging and the importance of messaging and radicalization, de-radicalization, counter-radicalization, all these issues 
um, I think they um, they're they're being looked at by kind of the standard players in terrorism studies, uh, the political scientists, the psychologists, the sociologists. But I'm glad to see it's getting involved at all, really. Or I'm glad to see that it's becoming a focus area, even Be, if it's by others. Because if you go back to the, the very de definition of what terrorism is, it's trying to get a message across mm -hmm. to a wider audience. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, it seems like there should be an input uh, from I communication. Sh I should say, too, that there are the mass communication people have looked at it for a while, but they look at it in a different way than I do. The the mass community, I'm, I'm more of an interpersonal persuasion, social influence scholar. The, um, the mass communication people look at it in terms of how media um, assists terrorist groups getting their message across, how mediated terrorism really affects kind of fear levels, things like that. So it's a much larger scale type of uh, type of analysis where I'm much more interested in what drives an individual toward terrorism or away from terrorism. Yeah. And when you're looking at radicalization, de-radicalization, it's that it's the individual that that's that's really important in, in understanding that. And it, it links up with with your your previous chapter there, looking at the different uh, DRAD uh, programs or actually uh, you question it at the end whether they should be de classified as DRAD programs or right. risk prevention. Right, yeah, just on the basis of what we talked about before, so whether or not actually de-radicalizing somebody, um, the way we define it, um, I have questions about that. But they are designed, what John and I have found that regardless of what it is they do, they're all designed to reduce the risk of recidivism. So we advocate for the uh, use of the term risk reduction yeah. initiative. <clears throat> Excuse me, and we've actually seen that some people have started using that term. Good, but yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, just just thinking about the differences here between the Saudi, the Yemeni, the Indonesian, and the French case, and specifically the French uh, case versus uh, the rest of them, in a way, like the French case is asking that question: How do people become involved, or mm -hmm. how do people leave? And the Saudi, Yemeni, and Indonesian ones, especially the the Yemeni ones, I think it's looking at the why as well. Mm -hmm. So it's actually using John's quest. It's the two sides of, of what John. Was oh yeah, and about. you can see the way that thinking about these issues has changed because the Saudi, the Yemeni, and the Indonesian program, which we analyzed in two thousand nine. I mean, they started the Yemeni program. I think started in two thousand three or two thousand four. The Saudi program was maybe a little bit after that, and the Indonesian program was around the same time. So you're looking at the mid-2000s at that point. The French program started just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, theorizing about terrorism has really changed in the time that those initial three programs came out versus the French program. So you can see that people are interested in different types of questions when they develop these programs. And, and it's also the different contexts that these are arising in, in, mm -hmm. in the fact, like even the different geographical contexts and mm -hmm. the different influence that that other external actors could have. I, there was a line in, in that chapter saying that, I think it was in relation to Yemen, they were saying, if we don't do this, the, the U.S. are going to step in and mm -hmm. try and do something. Right, yeah, that was Yemen, yeah. They mm -hmm. were really concerned that the U.S. was going to come in and become involved in, um, in taking care of the problem for mm -hmm. them. And um, I think, I mean, I can't, uh, I, I'm not sure it's 100% true, but it seemed that the leadership of Yemen at that point was worried that U.S. intervention was going to be U.S. intervention in what was going on. So, especially after the coal, the bombing of the coal in 2000. Yeah. So that, like that's drifting back to the to the DRAD piece. But I want to get back to this, uh, this issue of narratives now and bringing this base that yourself and, and Jim got when you were doing your your dissertation, uh, understanding about the persuasive 
uh, aspects of narratives on beliefs, attitudes, intentions and behaviours and applying that to uh, uh, counterterrorism. And it, you published this piece, it was 2016, just last year, mm-hmm. uh, with John. And you weren't publishing this as, okay, this is what we know, this is our analysis. You're, you set out to say, this is a guide on how you construct it. Mm-hmm. It was very much practically minded, thinking, okay, I'm not just going to give the information, I'm going to give step-by-step guide why was it that you decided to do that rather than the more traditional academic article well at that point um i was thinking about what sorts of questions we could answer to really help people and that's kind of the the way i want my my research to go is how do we help people in the field how can we ask academic questions to help people in the field to do what they need to do um and at that point i i think i actually asked john the question i was like we know how to do this why don't we just tell people how to do it and he said, yeah, start writing. So I started writing. And that paper was really influenced by uh, the work that Steve Corman and uh, his crew at Arizona State did on kind of the larger scale, what he called master narratives and how to counter master narratives. And very a lot of that is based on that. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude to them for influencing that article. But, um, but we were really interested at that point in... In saying we have we we have the data already. We've done these analyses. We know what works. We know what doesn't. Um, we don't need to kind of rebuild the wheel. We don't need to reinvent anything. Why don't we just stop screwing around and say this is how this gets done and see if people actually read it and start incorporating what we tell them that they should be doing. And that's what it turned into. Um, one of the things that it occurred to me in looking at research on counter narratives to that point was that nobody was considering source. Everybody was just saying, this is what, this is how we should tell a story. This is what we should tell people to try to counter uh, terrorist narratives. But nobody was saying anything about who should be telling the story. Who's the one who should be kind of disseminating those messages. Mm -hmm. So we also added a section on, well, we have this entire literature on source credibility and communication Mm -hmm. and what affects whether or not a message is persuasive or not is really contingent on who tells or who delivers the message. So we added an entire section on this is how you, you carefully select the source of the message. Um, it's just as important as how the message is constructed. So we have all this evidence in communication science and we figured why don't we just go ahead and say this is how we can use it to develop counter narratives. And that's what that's what that turned into. Yeah, and this this issue of the source, it, it's something that work that uh, unpublished uh, piece that myself and yourself have done together, linking up my research and trust and yours mm-hmm. uh, on source credibility. It's it's vitally important that even when you actually look at your DRAD programs, I'm just looking at my notes on it here. In the Indonesian case, they specifically wanted to be sure that they were trusted mm-hmm. in order because they needed to. They felt they needed to be trusted messengers in order for their DRAD program to work. Mm-hmm. Same with these counter narratives. If you can have the message out there, but if the source is not seen as credible, if it's not trusted, it's not going to be effective. Exactly. Um, why Why do you think this was being missed? Was it just a blinkered view on uh, just the content rather than, than anything else? I think that was part of it. I also think that a lot of... I mean, counter-narrative work is still really early days at this point. I mean, it's issues in terrorism and what people focus on. I mean, you know, it waxes and wanes. People focus on one thing, they focus on another. Um, And narratives and counter-narratives have really started gathering steam in the last two years and maybe tapering off a bit now. But so I say early days because two years is a really short period of time to bring any kind of academic focus 
in, into the area of terrorism. Um, I think when people started looking at counter narratives as a viable way to counter terrorist ideologies, they were mostly focused on content because there was a huge drive by the U.S. military in response to ISIS at the time to say, how do we replace the ISIS narrative? And replace, when you say you want to replace an ISIS narrative or, or, or give an alternative narrative or whatever, that speaks to what is in the counter-narrative. It doesn't speak to who delivers it. So nobody was concerned with that at that point. Um, I also think it's a function of the fact that as we said earlier, there are very few communication scholars in terrorism studies, so source credibility just isn't really considered. Um, that's something that's a really big issue in communication science, but if communication scientists aren't thinking about it, aren't thinking about it in relation to terrorism, then it's going to be missed. So to me, it seemed obvious. Um, to others, maybe not so much, until we started saying, well, maybe you should consider the source as well, and then they're like, oh, well, yeah, it makes sense to worry about that as well. Now, it's tricky to incorporate the right source at the right time in the right way, but at least it's being thought about now. So, you, as you say, it, it needs to be the right, the right source isn't always the same source. Mm -hmm. So, but generally speaking, what type of sources do you think could be considered credible in these, in these regards? It absolutely depends on the context and the group and the person. But generally speaking, one of the arguments we make is that in certain... Let's use geographic contexts and cultural contexts as an example. In Western countries, like say the United States and extreme right wingers, um, the right source for them would probably be somebody like a friend or a family member or somebody who's not an authority figure necessarily because Western societies, um, especially in the United States, value individualism and individual decision making. So um, it'd be more useful for if you were trying to deliver a counter-radicalization message to a young teenager who is kind of going down the path of becoming an extreme right-winger of some type. Um, you want them to think that they came to the conclusion on their own. You don't want them to think that they were being told something by some leader. Mm -hmm. Because, gen again, generally speaking, I mean, it's individual case to case, but generally speaking, uh, in the United States, individualism is really emphasized. Um, in contrast, in several Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries, there's a much greater emphasis on authority and authority figures, especially religious authority figures. So in those countries, it might be more useful to uh, have somebody trusted religious authority figure deliver that message. Now, it's tricky there because if somebody's already radicalized, it might be difficult to de-radicalize them because it's easy to just call somebody who comes to you and tries to deliver a counter-message, a non-believer, and dismiss their message. But those are issues that can be ironed out. But again, generally speaking, in countries like that, it might be more useful to have some sort of authority figure deliver the message. But that's just cultural context. There's all kinds of contexts that need to be considered when you think about the source. So that's, those are the sorts of issues that I'm starting to think about and starting to argue that need to be thought about by others in the field when we start partnering with people to deliver certain messages. And I suppose when you're considering something like that, it's, we can't just have this presumption that it is the religious message that's the persuasive message mm -hmm. for them. Just because that might be the ideology that the group is espousing, that mightn't necessarily be the, the rationale that, that was persuasive uh, in drawing someone towards the group. Right, that's a real common misconception that it's a one-to-one -one type thing. Like to, to A counter-radicalization message doesn't necessarily need to be the negative version of what they're being told by the terrorist group. Um, different types of messages will be persuasive for people in different circumstances. So although it is a lot of work, it's a lot of legwork, it's a lot of data collection, 
unfortunately that's the nature of the beast when it comes to counter-radicalization. It's a really individualized type thing. Mm -hmm. And to be able to know what sorts of messages, messages work, we need that kind of data. And have we got examples of really effective counter-narratives? Really effective counter-narratives? We don't have data on it. That's the problem. Um, the, the paper that John and I put out was just several months ago. Um, collecting data on what messages work in terms of counter-narratives is something that I'm doing now. I mentioned kind of the pilot studies that I'm doing now. One of them specifically re relates to the effectiveness of counter-narrative messages. So quantitative experimental data on whether this works, whether this doesn't work, under what conditions it works. Mm -hmm. So um, just like the de-radicalization programs, we can make claims and we have ideas about what might work, but we don't have any quantitative evidence to say what works and what doesn't. Um, that sounds hypocritical because I put out this paper saying this is what works, but those are all based on past work that's been validated by data and yeah. such. So now the next step is to take these steps that we've drawn out use them in this context of political violence and see if that holds you, see if they're robust in this context. And that, this is something you emphasize clearly uh, towards the end of the article. You'd say, while we have this understanding now, we really have to be testing it. Um, we have to be testing this empirically again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And you, so you talk about these pilot studies you're doing. What exactly are involved in, in these? What are you doing? Well, we have, there's three, I think, experimental studies that we're working on right now. Um, the one that I'm doing with Paul Gill, who you know, and Emily Corner, who you know. Um, Emily is a, she's a psychologist kind of by trade, and Paul's in the crime science department at UCL. And um, something that we're interested in there, again, this is another communication type thing that we're interested in. Um, in communication, one of the things that has been argued, has been shown, is that somebody's personality traits actually affects whether or not a message is persuasive in certain conditions. Now, in the 60s and 70s, we had terrorism researchers saying that terrorism is a function of these personality traits, and we know that's not true. But one of the things that I th I'm trying to argue, and we're testing this, is whether or not these personality traits, maybe they don't have a direct effect on somebody's proclivity for radicalization, but whether or not um, terrorist narratives are more persuasive to people of certain personality traits. And um, those personality traits we're looking at are, I mean, they're appropriately, they're called the dark tetrad. And it's uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and the two fun ones are everyday sadism and subclinical psychopathy. Cool. So those are the four that we're looking at. So within communication science, it's been shown that certain personality traits, inter they interact with certain message features. So we're doing that to see whether or not certain message features in terrorist narratives make them more persuasive to people of these that have these personality traits. And what kind of sample and uh, are you testing this on from what population? Is these are college, this is, that's why I call it a pile. These are college students. Um, so I'm running all these, these studies um, among college age popular, college populations now, and then after I run them once, if we see effects, I'm gonna try to test them in the field. Um, the prime example of that is I'm running a, a study on inoculation, which that, I think that's the direction I'm gonna start going now with my research is communicative inoculation, because I think there's a lot of promise for it. Um, inoculation in communication means that if you warn somebody of an impending threat to their existing beliefs or attitudes um, and give them a way to argue against those threats, then people tend to strengthen their resistance to messages. So this has been used in health communication quite a bit, where you would tell somebody, for instance, um, you don't smoke now and you think that smoking is gross. But next year, somebody might try to convince you that smoking is cool, and here's how you tell them 
that smoking isn't cool. So you give them a little dose of the persuasive messages they're going, they're going to encounter, like a vaccination or an inoculation, and it strengthens the resistance to any message they're going to encounter. And this has been shown, inoculation theory is one of the coolest communication theories there is because it's been shown across context to be, to be useful for having somebody resist persuasion. And it would strike me as it useful that if you take away uh, the violence part of political violence, just in politics in general, you mm-hmm. can see this in it during election campaigns, obviously the la- past uh, presidential election campaign that you just had in the US, you mm-hmm. can you can see this in practice as mm-hmm. well. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're, I'm doing that inoculation study by myself, again, just the college population now. Um, but I've also partnered with several other researchers. I'm working with uh, Jim Dillard again because he's a social influence scholar. Uh, I'm working with uh, Daniel Kohler, who uh, he's a German researcher. He heads up uh, GERDS. I'm going to butcher the acronym, but it's a German uh, research center on issues surrounding radicalization. But he's done a lot of work on the uh, Somali community in uh, in Minnesota. But I also want to make sure that I balance all the work that I do. I don't just want to focus on Islamic yeah. radicalism. Also, I'm very interested in extreme right-wing terrorism in the United States. So I'm also partnered with um, Ross Frenet, yeah. I think, yeah, uh, with, uh, with Moonshot CVE. And we're going to be looking at uh, extreme right-wingers using inoculation on them too. But the first step is to pilot the study with the college-aged population. So you talk about the extreme right-wing as one of the focuses at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see this um, as a significant threat in the U.S.? And Oh, yeah. I see it as the biggest threat in the U.S. right now, especially with the rise of populism mm-hmm. and the, uh, the ascension of Trump to the presidency. I mean, I'm, I try to stay out of politics as much as possible, but it, it's the, the ascension of Trump to the presidency is obviously um, emboldened the right wing in the U.S. I mean, you could see that every day. So um, even before Trump was president, the rise of the right wing was pretty well documented, and now they're emboldened and becoming violent. So I see them as the biggest threat. Um, I know that there is a um, kind of a movement or a drive or something that the, the government, government forces are trying to reestablish a focus on Islamic terrorism. Um, and that's fine if that's what they want to fund or, or put funding for. But I'm going to continue working on extreme right wingers. I mean, without funding, if I have to. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to focus any any project I do. I want to focus on both because I, I think that both um, both are a unique threat. But the right wing is involved because I think they're most their most significant threat, mm-hmm. which is why I focus on them as well. Yeah. So that's going to be the the next direction. So you've got. Uh, your focus, continued focus on uh, gathering empirical data uh, with a, a primarily looking at inoculation uh, in relation to uh, a ve- variety of forms of uh, terrorist and extremist groups, mm-hmm. be it right wing or otherwise. Um, so with throughout the interview, you've been discussing how uh, the importance of data is huge uh, in your research. Uh, and this sort of leads me on to the final question um, that, I, that I have for today. It's, what do you, how do you see the field of terrorism studies? It's not a field. How do you feel about the, the strength of uh, terrorism research at the moment? Uh, it's, I've kind of feelings of ambivalence about it because we see certain researchers are really moving toward the empirical, which is great to see. Um, the serious researchers are really 
like like I like to advocate for, really starting to focus on getting primary data and analyzing that data, mm-hmm. and are really serious scholars of terrorism. Um, at the same time, what I'm seeing, I mean, this might be a biased sample myself because I'm seeing it on Twitter more than anything else, is that the number of kind of self-proclaimed terrorist experts is also growing exponentially now. Um, and a lot of people who claim to be experts on terrorism have no background in psychology or sometimes not any academic field. Um, maybe they've read a couple of books and then they try to score media interviews or something like that, and then they suddenly they're quote, expert on terrorism. And I worry that people who go that route are becoming kind of the face of um, research of terrorism, where I feel like others, people like John, really should be the ones that should be the immediate go-to for those sorts of things. So I think that the empirical research, the empirical uh, drive of terrorism researchers is very strong. I think it's going in the absolute right direction. I think, I know you stepped back and said terrorism studies isn't really a field. Um, the focus of terrorism studies, I think, is really moving in a direction where it's based on the empirical, which I think is fantastic. But as with any field, we're, we're going to be inundated with kind of the self-proclaimed experts who don't really have uh, the background that other researchers have. And we need to be uh, kind of adept at parsing what's real, what's um, objective, systematic, empirical findings versus what's speculation. And I say that I say in almost every paper I write, um, again, I mean, it's the influence of John on my work, on your work, on everybody's work, in that um, there's so much out there that's speculation posing as science. And we just need to be sure that we know what's speculation and what's science. And if we can do that, I think that we will uh, we'll do quite a bit in terms of uh, addressing some of the problems that have been have been plaguing terrorism studies since its, uh, since its inception. And like, it's not just about gathering data, as as you emphasized in, in during the interview as well. It's it's about asking the right questions. It's mm-hmm. about posing the question the right way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about asking new questions because for a long time we have been. It's been the same questions that have been uh, been asked mm-hmm. and have been quite broad and general. Whereas sometimes we need to get a bit more specific. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not advocating not testing and retesting. We have to be doing that, but we sometimes have to be asking the the new things as well to get a broader understanding. Oh, absolutely. I think terrorism studies is guilty as any other. I mean, field focus at um, just kind of going in circles over things like definitions or anything else. And we're, I mean, we do it all the time. Every time that we write an article, we have to define our terms. And that's good. It's good to have operational definitions. But we're having the same debates that we were having 25 years ago. And I think that there needs to be a movement towards some sort of systematic way of agreeing on definitions. Um, Again, I think operational definitions within articles is good, but we can only have those debates so many times before we need to move on and actually start answering questions. So with all this in mind, and you're not that long out of a PhD in, in the broad scheme of things. Broad scheme of things, Broad yeah. scheme of things. If, if you were to give advice to someone who was starting off doctoral research, and mm-hmm. they like doctoral research is the time that you can really ask any question you mm-hmm. want. You can, you're never going to get this opportunity to really focus as much on a topic um, as, as, as during that period. What advice would you give a, a new doctoral researcher taking uh, their research in the direction of terrorism studies, whether it's to do with communications or not? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good question, but I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're asking questions that you yourself are interested in. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many students, I mean myself even at one point, 
um, you're told you need to go kind of a specific route for your PhD and you have to ask these specific questions. And I mean, we all listen to our advisors. I was lucky in that both Jim and John, who were both really in, intimately involved with my dissertation, um, they were really open to just letting me ask any question I wanted. Um, but a lot of people, they just kind of want to be their advisor's clone. And I think that's a mistake. I think really you need to be able to pursue questions that you think are interesting because it'll keep you going. It'll make you think about things. And if you're interested in, you'll find if you allow your brain to think about issues that haven't been thought about before, that you can take those in directions or those questions in directions that haven't been thought about before in terrorism studies itself. So be creative. Don't worry about stepping on anybody's toes. You don't want to be insulting in terrorism studies, but ask questions, question what goes on in terrorism studies, and just read and write really as much as you can. Um, But the best advice I could give is really just focus on what interests you. I mean, it's kind of cliche, but it's absolutely true. Otherwise, you won't finish your PhD more than anything else. Yeah, it's a a good message to to finish on. So... Kurt, thanks very much for flying all the way over from the States, yeah. just specifically for this interview. Yeah, option. absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's been great chatting to you. Yeah, um, you too, John. And uh, I, if you want to read any of the articles that Kurt has referred to here, there are links on our website. That's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Uh, all updates about these podcasts, about upcoming guests um, are... Up, are on that website they're also announced via twitter which is at t-e-r-c-u-e-l i'd like to thank uh, kurt once again for joining us i'd like to thank jamie murray for editing today's episode as always so i hope that you enjoyed today's interview with kurt be sure to come back next week and download my interview with Dr. Orla Lynch from the University College Cork. In that, Orla will be talking about a variety of her research, including the important work that she's done in relation to research on victims of terrorism. Okay, talk to you all then. Bye.